Welcome to SLU Law Summations, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. It has been five years since the death of Michael Brown exposed a plethora of injustices in the St. Louis region. Five years since the region's municipal court system came under fire, an issue that was decades in the making. I'm Maria Sakalis. And I'm Jessica Sacconi. Today we are joined by Professor Brendan Rodiger. Brendan and his colleagues in the SLU Law Legal Clinics first took steps towards municipal court reform years before the nation's eyes were on Ferguson. He's a professor in the SLU Law Legal Clinics and director of the Litigation Clinic. He was recently recently profiled by the St. Louis Post-Dispatch for his legal efforts in the protest movement in Ferguson and beyond. He has joined us today to talk about municipal courts and what progress has been made since August of 2014. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. First, let's unpack the municipal court system in St. Louis. Uh, There's a lot there. What does it look like to those who might not be familiar? That's a big question. (laughs) So every state has uh, is sort of tasked with dealing with petty violations and you know primarily we're talking about traffic violations although there are there are other things involved as well Missouri has historically sort of said that cities are responsible for enforcement of minor violations and they've given power the state has given power to individual towns villages and cities to prosecute these violations Um, at certain points historically this was in what were called police courts where literally the police chief was sort of the judge or mayor's courts in which the mayor was Uh the judge Um, but in recent times there are um, systems usually town specific uh, where the council or the mayor appoints a judge the city hires a prosecutor and they prosecute these offenses Uh, and and it is a big question but I'll I'll try to tackle it (laughs) Other states uh, have administrative systems where there are administrative hearings or they deal with them as a part of their regular unified court system. Mm -hmm. So in Missouri, we deal with it town by town. Um, What I found when I came here, and I think um, what a lot of uh, lawyers had just sort of learned to live with, was a system in which um, there was no oversight. So individual towns were sort of left to their own devices to prosecute. And oftentimes they tended towards corruption and towards paying or, and towards preying on the poorest of their citizens. Um, so when I first started practicing in Missouri, people would say, are you going to do night court? And I would say, well, why would I do night court? That's at night. That sounds terrible. <laughs> and, uh, And I didn't entirely, coming from Illinois, understand how important it was. And then I started to meet with clients. And whatever I was meeting with clients to talk about, inevitably, they would say to me, I also have warrants. Um, It was very odd to me that every person I met had warrants, including clients who I would, you know, sort of venture to say were fairly responsible Mm -hmm. and and had things together Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And and not just one or two warrants. I had a, I remember one of my first clients had 26 warrants. And it just seemed... Sort of unimaginable uh-huh. to me. So I started going to these night courts, and um, the optics were just incredible. You would walk into these rooms, which are, you know, the court is often held at you know, a church basement or a gymnasium mm-hmm. for a high school, um, sometimes uh, the city hall. And you would see usually three or four hundred almost exclusively uh, black defendants uh, waiting in a line. Sometimes the line would stretch. Um, outside and then inevitably a white clerk a white judge 
and a white prosecutor. Mm-hmm. So the optics were just very, very stark. I think the the first court I went to was in Bell Ridge, and it was just sort of mind-blowing. Um, and so people will stand in line, and they they wait to their chance to get in front of the judge, and the judge inevitably says, do you plead guilty, not guilty, or guilty with an explanation? And the hope is that people plead guilty or guilty with an explanation, and then they get fined. And there's nothing that jarring about somebody pleading guilty. It happens every day. Mm-hmm. But to sort of play out what happens afterwards, so mm-hmm. you know, I always tell my student, imagine that you're 20 years old and you just got your first car. It's an eight-year-old Nissan Maxima. And you get pulled over in a small town in North County, um, and you get pulled over for speeding. So you get a speeding ticket, and you go to that court, you wait in the line, you sort of try to pay attention to what the people are doing in front of you. You say, okay, well, people are pleading guilty. Nobody's going to jail. Seems okay. I'll plead guilty. Mm -hmm. And the judge says that'll be $360. You owe that $360 today, but I'll do you a big favor. You can come back in two weeks and pay it Mm -hmm. if that's what you need. So you say, sure, and then it gets to be two weeks later, and it's that new court date, and you have $120. You don't have $360. Mm -hmm. And you know you can't make the payment, and you don't want to go to jail. Um, so you don't go. And the next time you get pulled over, you're in a town a couple of miles down the street. Well, this time you get pulled over, let's say, for blowing a stop sign, or maybe you just get pulled over because they ran your plates and they mm-hmm. found the other ticket. Mm-hmm. Well, little do you know that you've been driving while suspended because when you fa- failed to appear for that prior court date, your license was automatically suspended. And you have a warrant out. So you're going to jail in the town that you got pulled over in. But once you bond out there, you're getting transferred to the town that you initially had a warrant in. And when all is said and done, you're still going to owe that initial speeding ticket. You're also going to owe fines from your driving while suspended. Mm -hmm. You may owe some warrant fees for them having issued the warrant um, and whatever else. And so very quickly, these things can sort of cascade into being thousands and thousands Mm -hmm. of dollars. And dozens of warrants Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's that's the system right and it sounds like a system where people can easily get lost and and behind and not be able to kind of dig themselves out of an issue like that yeah and and start small and just gets huge for my clients I know I'm I'm here to talk about the law but for my clients it it becomes sort of a psychological phenomenon Mm -hmm. And, and if you can sort of imagine just the weight that comes from walking around every day knowing that you're subject to being arrested mm-hmm. um, and that so you know if you're a single mother um, and you have a half hour free during the day and you know that if you drive your car you can get to schnooks and you can pick up the groceries um, do you take the risk mm-hmm. knowing that you might get pulled over and if you get pulled over you're going to go to jail and if you go to jail your children are going to get picked up by DFS. Right. It creates a psychological mm-hmm. sort mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So what were some of the first issues that you worked to address as a professor in the legal clinics with your students here? So it started, like most things do, with direct representation, meaning that individual clients, oftentimes homeless clients, uh, would come with municipal uh, cases, and the clinic would represent the clients. Mm-hmm. 
And what we found was that, and maybe it's because I'm positioned at a, at a law school with a lot of respect in the community um, because people really like the work that the clinic does, mm -hmm. um, that we often got very, very good results for our clients um, and had fairly good relationships for the most part with prosecutors and judges. But it put me in the position of sort of taking students to these courts and we would walk out very pleased for the result that we got for our clients, but inevitably on the drive home, the students would say, hey, did you notice that there were 350 other people there <laughs> right. <laughs> who did not walk out of there feeling very good? Yeah. And so if you keep being exposed to that over and over again, at a certain point, you think to yourself, you know, I'm not this piecemeal approach, while it feels good, and it certainly is worthwhile for the client mm -hmm. that I represent, mm -hmm. it's not making the change that we need to make. So starting in late 2013, we really started meeting to talk about systemic reforms and, mm -hmm. and what was the most strategic way to go about trying to address the whole system. Right, right. And wasn't, correct me if I'm wrong, but if wasn't it didn't have to do with uh, making sure that people could bring in children and other opening up the courts so they weren't just closed to lawyers and um, defendants, is that right? Yeah, so, you know, it, maybe it was a sort of a desire to tackle the most obvious constitutional violations first, mm -hmm. but one of the things that we noticed was that there were many courts that were closed to any person that was, quote-unquote, not on the docket. Mm -hmm. And what that would mean is that parents would show up with children, so they would be at court, on time to court, and ready to deal with their ticket, mm -hmm. and they would be told by security that they could only come in if they got rid of the child. And so it put my clients in the position of either asking a stranger oh, to yeah. watch their child, yeah. putting their child in the car and leaving the child in the car in the parking lot, mm. or going home and getting a warrant. Right. And, of course, the reasonable adult thing to do in that situation is to get the warrant. Right. right? The other options mm -hmm. are not acceptable. No, yeah. And so that is what would happen. And mm -hmm. so we thought, well, no one can really argue that a closed courtroom is constitutionally acceptable. Mm -hmm. We're going to start there. Uh, mm -hmm. Little did we know that even that was. was I know. <laughs> I know. I know. So, after the death of Michael Brown, municipal courts came under fire for what was deemed by some as predatory practices. Can you talk about the work that you and your colleagues have done in that regard, and perhaps how some of the national attention kind of put a spotlight on that? So my opinion is that in the wake of Darren Wilson killing Michael Brown, um, there was a, sort of a question floating, and the, the question was, why are people so angry? Um, and the actual answer to that question is that police were shooting unarmed black men and women, uh, largely without consequences. Mm -hmm. um, I think, and this is a controversial thing to say, that largely out of a desire to avoid that answer, um, people started looking for other um, places where the system was subject to critique. Mm -hmm. And municipal courts were one of those areas. I believe the two issues are connected. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't see them as entirely separate, and I think that Michael Brown's murder really sort of brings that into stark perspective because you know, the first thing said to Michael Brown is get the F mm -hmm. out of the street. And so it's about that level of policing, sort of policing everyday life and minor mistakes. Mm -hmm. that, that's actually what leads to the interaction. 
And of course, from my perspective, representing protesters, there was this other obvious intersection, which was that the protesters that were getting arrested, we couldn't get out of jail mm -hmm. because they had warrants in these courts from all over the place. So they would have a very minor protest-related arrest, mm -hmm. and then we would be chasing them from one town's jail to another. So to me, these systems interact, and these systems are all sort of uh, working together, and attempting to separate those things is a, a difficult game. Right, right. We did the best we could. That's the answer, the students and I. Mm -hmm. um, we saw an opportunity, um, thanks to the work of Redley Balco and other journalists and sort of national attention um, being brought to the municipal court system, we saw an opportunity to do some reform work. Mm -hmm. And we really tried to do that reform work in a way that did not detract from the message of the protests, mm -hmm. right? But that was sort of, uh, I don't want to say parallel, maybe integrated, right? right? That mm -hmm. the two things were working together. Mm -hmm. And we had relationships with folks who were participating in protests. Um, we tried to be involved in as many things as we could. So I think litigation got the most uh, attention. Yeah. We filed a lot of lawsuits, mm -hmm. lawsuits about illegal fees and illegal fines, what are called debtor prisons lawsuits, mm -hmm. uh, big lawsuits that basically argue that keeping poor people in jail when rich people get out is unconstitutional, mm -hmm. class action lawsuits. Um, also worked on legislative drafting. Uh, also participated in the Ferguson Commission. Mm -hmm. um, also was on the street at protests and trying to work with protesters. So the, the idea was to show students what it means to sort of do every facet of reform work. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, because just doing one thing doesn't work. And right. we can't pretend that the protests weren't the driving force behind all of this mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. happening mm -hmm. um, and the media attention mm -hmm. and, and all those things. So to just say, I'm a lawyer, I do this narrow lane right. of work because I'm a lawyer, it, it doesn't work. You have to be willing to, to do all of the different things. Mm -hmm. um, and everything's so interrelated and, and there, it's almost like a multifaceted approach to reform, really. No. <laughs> yeah, and, and trying to, you know, you'll notice that I, I probably pause every time before I say reform um, because the word is, you know, the word does not have a good history in mm -hmm. this country. Mm -hmm. um, and so many reforms in retrospect end up being failures. And, I mean, the very municipal court system that is under attack and rightfully so was itself a reform of a worse, right? or at the time people thought worse yeah. system. Um, so, you know, I hate to see myself as a reformist, mm -hmm. but the reality is that legal work is often reform work. Mm -hmm. um, I was and remain committed to getting rid of municipal courts. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that there is such a thing as a good professional municipal court. I think they will always be subject to corruption mm -hmm. just by their very nature. Mm -hmm. But that can't mean um, that you just do nothing because you're you know, you're so principled that you refuse to accept anything other right. than other than abolition. So uh -huh. you keep doing the work mm -hmm. and you keep abolition in sight, mm -hmm. um, but you work in that direction. Mm -hmm. You take the victories that you can take. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What um, do you have an example of a city or a, a state that is actually doing a good job at at the kind of lower level um, violations? So there is no state that I would hold out as the perfect example. 
Um, there are states that have gotten rid of driver's license suspensions. California sort mm -hmm. of um, very publicly got rid of driver's license suspensions and has done other work towards eliminating um, criminal justice debt and incarceration mm -hmm. from criminal justice debt. Um, there are ways in which Louisiana is a model state, but none of these states do everything right. And there's, um, in every state, poor people find themselves sort of wrapped up in this system. I'm a little bit of a fan of administrative systems uh, because they don't involve jail. Mm -hmm. And I just think that jail has no place in this conversation. So I, you know, I come from Minnesota, and in Minnesota, if you, if you get a ticket uh, and you want to argue the ticket, it's on you to go down and meet with an administrative judge and, and argue your case. Mm -hmm. um, if you fail to do that, the consequence is that you owe the money. And if you fail to pay the money, the consequence is that they'll try to find a way to get the money. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so that could be uh, taking your tax refund yeah. or, yeah. you know, things that are very hard for poor people, but that are objectively less cruel than throwing them in jail for three, right. for three months. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also a big fan of, you know, admitting that we live in a, an unequal society and that finding one person $100 is not the same as finding another person a hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. um, if I get a hundred dollar fine, it is a hassle. I am upset. It is not affecting my month. Mm -hmm. um, there are people that that will take um, from poverty to homelessness, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, from working poor to homeless. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be aware of that. And, and there are situations where if our, if our idea is to quote unquote, teach people a lesson to deter people from negative behavior, sometimes five dollars is sufficient right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's all relative as we're looking back over the last five years where do you still see the biggest need for change um and what do you think can be done to actually take those steps So I guess I have two answers to that. I mean, the, the first answer is that none of the quote-unquote reforms or, or fixes um, are in and of themselves sufficient. Um, none of them get at core issues of racial bias in policing. Um, none of them get at the core issue of homelessness. So we're always, you know, this work feels very important while you're doing it, but you're always working around the edges. You're never fixing the core problems. Mm -hmm. um, to the extent that there has been some progress, meaning that defendants have a few more rights in municipal court than they used to, Senate Bill 5 has put some limits on how much money uh, cities, towns, villages can make off of their municipal court. Uh, I don't think those victories are secure, mm -hmm. um, meaning that they sort of rely upon oversight that is not permanent. Mm -hmm. So as long as the media is paying attention, as long as the presiding judge of St. Louis County is is paying attention, which itself is related to the fact that the media is playing right. is paying attention, uh, I think towns are likely to improve their behavior. Mm -hmm. But that's temporary, and that goes away. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't have system structures in place that will catch it when it happens again. Mm -hmm. And so we could very easily be back here five years from now or, or 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side, I guess you kind of did touch on this, 
just now, but where would you say has real progress been made? You touched on defendants having a few more rights than in the past, um, but what else would you say has, has been an improvement for the region and has given some, some sort of optimism? I'll give you an honest answer. My soul, the, the system in Missouri, and this is true throughout the United States, but I think it's especially true in Missouri, the system is unbending. Um, and so uh, it, I had hope, and it was false hope. At certain points in late 2014 and early 2015, I thought that there might be systemic change that was serious um, and that took the plight of black residents um, seriously. Uh, it did not come to fruition. So my sole source of optimism is that the moment itself produced a generation of young people um, that went on to become organizers and activists um, and who continue to do the work um, in the city and, and in the county. And some of those people I have enormous trust in and they will be leaders for decades to come. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that their work over the next few decades will result in the things that we failed to get. So what lessons do you think law students have been able to learn from doing this type of work in the clinics over the last five years? I think that students come to the clinic uh, excited to change the world. Um, and I think that they imagine that the law is one of the ways that you can do that. Um, but they quickly see courtrooms. And I think the most meaningful moments are not, you know, the first time that a student is in front of a judge or the mm -hmm. first time that a student is doing something that's quote unquote important. But really, you know, walking into a courtroom and seeing 16 black men shackled together mm -hmm. and sort of for the first time it dawning on students that this is the system that they're entering, right? That it's the, the practice of law in the United States means proximity to this sort of oppression mm -hmm. and um, that we bear some responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so we have a lot of conversations in class about the fact that the way things are should never be taken for granted. Um, and uh, because I think the temptation, and I'm subject to it too, is if you see something every day, you just get used to it. Mm -hmm. um, it is quite simply the way that things are. And it's not that you lose track of the fact that, that it feels bad, that it looks bad, but you just think it's permanent and it can never be changed. And so to have a real reflective conversation with students where I say, you know, you're inheriting this system. You should assume that it has not always been the way that it is today. That 20 years before that it looked different um, and 20 years before that it looked different mm -hmm. and that it's now your turn um, to do something to it. You know, the, the truth is that uh, it is very risky to rock the boat. Mm -hmm. um, the municipal court system is a small example but even that small system when attacked there was a backlash, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and you lose friends, and uh, you are you get mean looks mm -hmm. when you walk in to courthouses, and so you you talk to students about the history of that, about lawyers that before, and of course you can't compare yourself to Thurgood Marshall or right. or other lawyers, but 
there were lawyers before who had to do this work Mm -hmm. and who had to face the backlash of this. And at the time that they did it, there was um, there was nothing but loathing. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we look at them as people who sort of transformed our society. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there don't have to be prisons. There don't have to be police. I'm not saying there shouldn't be, but like all of these <laughs> things that we imagine to be permanent and to be the only way of solving social problems, right? They are subject to debate. Mm-hmm. And a new generation can decide to do something different. I think unfortunately sometimes law school can take away that 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 drive, that creativity from students because you have to spend so much time learning law, mm-hmm. absorbing law, mm-hmm. getting ready to, to tell somebody else the law so that you can pass the bar. Um, and there's not much time or space for creativity. Mm-hmm. And so my hope is that clinic can be a space where we have real discussions about sort of an expansive view of lawyering um, and that my failures to sort of fundamentally alter this system will be remedied by those students 10 or 15 years Mm -hmm. from now and I'll get to watch as things actually do get better. Um, Yeah. So we'll just check back with you in like 10 to 15 years. Yeah, basically what I'm saying is that I failed, but I'm pretty sure my students are going to fix it. <laughs> no pressure, guys. Right? <laughs> Come to Slow Law. Right? <laughs> well, thank you for joining us today, Brendan. There's a lot of stuff that we've covered, and it's all very important. And thank you for the work you do and for teaching those students to go out and uh, change the world. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for SLU Law Summations, produced by St. Louis University School of Law.